I've looked at a lot of different scenarios. I've looked at uh, countries in West Africa that are still being colonized through money by France. I've looked at the Palestinian issue and how they face enormous financial repression. Uh, I've looked at countries like Nigeria, Sudan, and Ethiopia that face uh, massive inflation. Um, and Cuba was a natural place to look at. Uh, most people are aware that Cuba has enormous political repression. And most people are also aware that there's, uh, you know, enormous uh, amounts of um, restrictions from foreign entities. So in some ways, it's sort of similar to the Palestinian uh, example, where Palestinians are both repressed by Hamas uh, or, or a corrupt Fatah government, but also live under all these Israeli restrictions. The Cubans are, are kind of similar in that they, they live under this military kind of dictatorship, but they also have this uh, kind of unprecedented um, embargo from, from the United States, which is obviously this huge economic force right next door. So it's um, kind of doubly difficult for them. And uh, what I discovered in doing the research and talking to Cubans and you know, reading about Cuban history, in, in addition to the, the work I've already done at the Human Rights Foundation on Cuba, which related to the information space. And starting in 2007, I was working on helping get outside information into Cuba uh, when, when the internet was, did, basically didn't exist. Um, we were getting kind of, kind of contraband films and movies and books into Cuba. That was what I started working on in 2007 at HRF. But with that background, I, what, I, what I basically saw is that money is at the root of so many of Cuba's problems. And, and the government has basically created these numerous kind of like rug pulls um, on the people. And I mean, some of them are just stunning. Like basically, and, and Boas, who's here, he'll tell us more about this. But what, what was incredible is to, to kind of look, look at how in the 90s, when the Soviet Union collapsed, you know, Cuba lost its its lifeblood. I mean, the, the Cubans were completely systematically dependent on the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, they, they they basically imported, they exported most of their sugar to the Soviets who bought it at a higher than market price. So it was like a subsidy. Like the, the Communist Party of Cuba would not have existed without the Soviet Union. And when that collapsed, like the, the peso just completely disintegrated. It went from like five to a dollar to like 150. So people started using dollars and the regime actually started promoting the use of dollars and allowed Cubans to make deposits in dollars. And as Boaz notes, there was like a kind of a dollarization that happened similar to what's happening in Venezuela today. And he says, as, you know, as much as 50% of all of the interactions economically, all the transactions on the island were being done in dollars. So to kind of like um, stem this because Castro didn't want the whole island to be running on the enemy currency, he created like a fake dollar called the, the CUC, right? The Cuban convertible peso. And for 10 years, it, it you know, circulated in Cuba alongside the dollar and the peso. But in 2004 came the rug pull when the regime basically said, no, you can't use dollars anymore. And they basically just moved the dollar out of the used economy uh, and converted all of it to, you know, convertible pesos. So what, what Boaz notes was that essentially what happened is the situation went from Cubans holding dollars, using dollars, uh, to 
Cubans holding fake dollars. This is just an incredible rug pull that the government pulled on the people. Um, and, you know, it kind of happens again and again in Cuban history. During the revolution, I mean, Che was the president of the central bank, and he, he literally switched the currency from the uh, from being pegged essentially to the dollar to being pegged to the ruble, which was only 25% the value of the dollar. They also demonetized all the old currency. So Cubans over time have just like basically been screwed over by the government uh, from a currency point of view. And, and this story like just isn't told enough. So what I tried to do was go into a lot of that and then also look at how Cubans are using technology, in this case, Bitcoin, um, to just find some freedom and way to connect with the outside world in a time when, when, when that's just such a difficult thing to do. So happy to have all these great uh, guests also up here with us. I know that Eric, Eric is here. Hopefully he can get up on stage. Um, Eric runs a business in Cuba around remittances. Um, we have uh, Ricardo here. We have Boas. Um, I don't know, uh, CK, maybe we can start with Boas here and maybe he can fill us in on some of his research and some of what he's been up to. I think that'd be a good, a good, good transition. And then maybe we can move, move to Eric. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and before uh, Boaz, uh, Antonio, I think you're listening. Uh, if you just request, uh, I can let you on stage. But uh, until you request, for whatever reason, you're kind of stuck uh, in the listener spot. Um, but go for it, Eric. All right. Should should I start then? Can you guys hear me? Oh, all right. Sorry, I, I apologize. Go for it, Boaz. Yeah, Boaz, go ahead. All right. So um, just just to give you guys a bit of context about um, you know what I do and how how I got involved in the whole cuba bitcoin topic um so i i started a business back in 2017 ish uh, late 2016 um and my goal was to help basically cubans sell their services online because uh, you know those were the days of, of obama's visit to to cuba and you know everyone said that cuba would be opening for business and it would be a great business opportunity. And I went to Cuba and I saw that people had very, you know, very limited internet connection. They had very limited experience selling things online. Um, and I decided it would be a good business to help help Cubans sell things online. So I, I helped um, sell all sorts of uh, tourism services, things like that. And that's that's kind of where my my crypto journey began because as I set up my you know fully legal European incorporated company. I very quickly discovered that it was very hard to get financial services um, for a company that did anything with Cuba, even though, you know, just to make things clear, from what I was doing from a European, from an EU perspective, there's absolutely nothing illegal and nothing wrong with what I was doing. I was helping, you know, in fact, even according to the US government, what I was doing is completely fine because I was helping private individuals, no one in the government. But still, I found it all very, very hard to, to get, um, you know, financial services to bank my company and almost next to impossible to send money to Cuba. You know, at some point I had, you know, people with multiple debit cards and credit cards withdrawing from cash machines all over Havana to pay suppliers. And as you can imagine, that's just not, uh, you know, that's just not a tenable um, situation. So. I was trying to research this, trying to figure out what I can do about it. And that's how I um, stumbled into the world of cryptocurrency in Cuba. So I discovered that um, you could actually sell um, Bitcoin at premium compared to, 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 to market rates back then, up to 10% premium. 
Um, and I effectively started using that as a, um, you know, as a, as a corridor, remittance corridor. I would buy Bitcoin in Europe and I would sell it, at, you know, at a premium in Cuba. And that way I got to know a lot of the people that were involved in the community back then. Um, you know, my business obviously died with, with the whole coronavirus situation. So I've not been as connected since then. But the whole, you know, first lockdowns of, of, of COVID gave me the opportunity of actually sitting down and researching, okay, like, why is Cuba's monetary situation the way it is? And I ended up writing an essay that got picked up by Hacker News and by a lot of other um, websites, uh, basically explaining how the day-to-day -day situation with the money works in Cuba and giving this historical context that Alex just mentioned about how, you know, at the you know, end of the 19, sorry, beginning of the 1990s, there's this huge economic crash, um, you know, with the fall of the Soviet Union, and from which Cuba has basically never really fully recovered. Like the standards of living have never really fully recovered since that crash. Um, and this crash is so big, you know, you have situation, you know, you have issues with malnutrition, with, you know, all sorts of problems. Um, and, you know, the... the, the Uh, did we lose Boaz? Yeah, I can't. I can't hear him. Sorry, sorry, guys. Uh, there he is. I'm back. Where, where was I lost? Uh, malnutrition. Yeah. So, so it's it's a terrible, terrible. Um, Just uh, the Soviet Union collapse. Yeah, Soviet Union collapse. It's a terrible economic situation in Cuba, and you know the the currency starts to hyperinflate. Um, so so people um, inevitably turn to the dollar. And, you know, back then, the easiest way to get dollars is you've got all these flights in from Miami. You've got cousins in Miami, the uncles in Miami. Um, you've also got all the tourists that are coming in um, oh, and dude, they're leaving the dollar. Fucking there. internet. It's killing me. Um, um, can, can you guys we, hear me? We can actually hear him, Alex. Yeah, we can hear him. Um, but Boaz, continue. I apologize. All right. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so, so, so Cubans have access to these dollars from foreigners that are coming abroad, from tourism and from, um, you know, from the, the diaspora. And uh, they start to dollarize. And at some point, the government gets rid of the dollar over 10 years, as Alex said, with the CUC, um, which is basically like, you know, in crypto terms, it's a, it's a dollar paid stable coin. And you would deposit um, your real dollars in the bank and you'd get this dollar paid stable coin. And then eventually, you know, the CUC lost its peg and sort of like disappeared, um, you know, at the beginning of this year, um, which, is, which is interesting, I think, um, and might be a lesson for many of us in this call. In any case, um, now that the CUC is gone, um, the Cuban currency is again starting to hyperinflate, uh, or not hyperinflate, but the inflation is pretty strong. Like prices are growing at a very, very strong rate food, etc. There's, there's shortages of a lot of things. And now the difference is that there's not that many flights from Miami due to the pandemic. There's not that many, you know, tourists going in. So like the traditional ways of um, getting hard foreign currency have been shut off. Donald Trump has shut down the written channels of Western Union, etc. So basically, there's this, you know, acute shortage of, 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 of foreign hard currency for a population. And I found that in my experience, a lot of people are increasingly turning towards Bitcoin. 
So, uh, yeah, that, that's that's what some, you know, the stuff I've written about and that's sort of the, the, the historical context in which we are in. Um, it's very similar to the, to the, you know, desperate situation in the 1990s with the difference that now we have the internet and we don't have, you know, the traditional ways of obtaining hard currency, which was the U.S. dollar. Thanks. Um, I, I want to get Eric involved, uh, but just um, before that, just to, to recap, the dual currency system has changed in Cuba, and the government introduced a couple of years ago something called the MLC, uh, which, as I described in the article, is kind of like a gift card in some ways. You have to top it up with uh, hard foreign currency. So at the beginning, it was like dollars or Canadian dollars or euros. But after Trump's restrictions, you could no longer top up the MLC with dollars. So you need like pounds or euros or Canadian dollars to do it. And this is what you need to buy stuff essentially at the good stores in Cuba. So what the regime does is it has this kind of machine, the scheme it runs where it pays like the workers for its planned economy in pesos, which are collapsing. Like the peso has gone from like whatever, 24 to, to $1 to almost 70 in the black market. So Cubans have lost like two thirds of their purchasing power if they're on a pension or if they're being paid by the state. Um, and they can't use the pesos to buy the MLC to get the stuff they need. So they have to go to the black market and buy the, peso, buy the pesos, rather buy the MLC with the pesos at this black market rate. So the, the Cuban government essentially can print these pesos uh, with, its machine, with its money printing machine. And, and in exchange, it essentially gets foreign hard currency. So the whole system is like a way for it to get foreign hard currency. And the regime, you know, says that this is kind of like what it needs to do in order to keep the economy afloat. Now, um, Eric has, has created a business in, in, in Havana of mainly, I guess, Americans who are looking to support their families. So maybe, Eric, you could, you could go and share your, your story a little bit with us. Well, thank you, Alex. Um, good morning to everyone. I have to say, at the, uh, I have to say one thing. I'm currently in a blackout since two hours ago, and maybe my phone doesn't get the amount of battery needed to to participate in this uh, room. So sorry for that. Um, I'm I'm dying right now with the with the energy in the phone. Uh, well, thank you for the invitation. I, um, it's a pleasure to me be here and tell to the community all the all the scenario or the, or the the actual scenario of Bitcoin in Cuba. There is a um, increasing increasing movement to the crypto world from the Cuban people, and the 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 most. You said in the in the population is as you told before. Um, the people are trying to to get Bitcoin as um, economy economy store of value of value. Also, they they are using the the Bitcoin to to buy from stuff over internet. So before they 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 are not allowed to to do it because. We have no PayPal, we have no Skrill, Cell, or any other payment solution. So um, the, the Cuban people just are, 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 are trying to get a friend, a family, um, some kind of, of partnership with another um, 
dude over internet as told before both which make some companies over in in, in Europe uh, and trying to do the the most legal possible those business well the Cuban has no right to do that the, the Cubans um, don't have the the amount of power to make a, a company to make a a, a, a prime and that's the current scenario in the in the years of 20, 2019 2020 when 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 i saw the potential the the current potential of the use of Bitcoin with a global scenario, with a, a global economy, with a no restriction solution to provide service, provide products, or even use it as the as the normal normal use of Satoshi Nakamoto idea, using a, a payment uh, gateway to remittances, to freedom to the people and forget about the the fiat currency so i i'm just do that i'm just so that business model i just um, see a lot a lot of smart guys here in cuba using the the crypto channel let's say the the crypto um, highway to get some payments from any other people in the world So if you live in Cuba and you have a friend living in Australia and that friend need to pay for need to pay you for anything or even as a remittance you can do it through Bitcoin. Uh because there's no there's no other way with a with a actual um negotiation with the Cuban banks over other outside banks and that's the that that is the the business model i see that i just um, uh, analyze the the those smart guys using telegram using whatsapp using uh classified to provide some kind of remittance micro company Uh, or individual micro rem or individual remittance um, solutions, and I saw that that business model they get the satoshis, they get the transaction from from a from a Cuban or other people willing to send money to Cuba, and then they get those satoshis and they pay to the Cuban family or the Cuban a friend or anything the amount of cup transferred from the from the friend outside and then they get those satoshis and resell in a in a in a custom exchange or use it as store of, of value or simply buy from bitrefill which is listening right now They buy gift cards on Bitrefill and then buy stuff over Walmart and then pay with crypto over uh, uh, companies which deliver to Cuba those products. And there is a, a circular economy with the 
get the cryptocurrency pay for the for the remittance or the product you are selling you can you can as Cuban you can deliver um, translate trans, translation services uh, website creation um, designs everything you can do it with Bitcoin living in Cuba because you have no any other payment solution so that's the business model that's the that is the the idea with all this and then and eric you've 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 eric you've been on like you, you go on like television right in cuba like you, you've tried to tell the people about this right i mean uh it doesn't seem yeah. like it, it seems like it's kind of okay for you to talk about this like openly right like your business is fine right yeah there's no problem with that so um I, I run uh, I, I run a, a YouTube channel and I, I tell the people some tech, tech tech tips over over internet living in Cuba. My my niche is the Cuban people who doesn't have the um, the amount of knowledge to survive or make money over internet or provide their talents their services, and that's my niche. My niche is teach to the people how they can do it using Bitcoin. Uh, so anyone can do it. Any any Cuban or any people in the world can accept crypto payments and deliver fiat currency payments for anything. Uh, and just make um, a website who, who do that as the most convenient um, option, of course. But every Cuban, any, any right, Cuban so can do that. Of course. So what, hap- what ends up happening is that Americans will um, either send Bitcoin through Eric's service, uh, and then he will then provide like MLC or pesos, like on the other end, to the to the recipients, or they'll just send it directly to the Cubans individuals uh, on their like non-custodial right. wallets, like for example, like some people use Green Wallet, Blue Wallet, etc., and then they'll use Telegram groups to find others who are willing to buy the Bitcoin in exchange for MLC or pesos. A key thing to understand is that the MLC can be transferred like peer to peer. And again, that's like mm-hmm. what you need to buy the stuff uh, from the stores. The background there is important because before the MLC system, if you wanted like an air conditioner, you might um, hire someone in Panama, for example, to like give you an air conditioner and you'd pay them in dollars perhaps or in some other foreign currency. And the regime, the government wouldn't get any tax like ability they wouldn't be able to like extract value from that so the mlc was actually quite brilliant because what it does is it allows the government it it, it kind of the government now stocks all these stores with the air conditioners so that as a cuban you're going to go to the store and you're going to first buy mlc so the government gets a cut there and then you're going to give them the mlc for the air conditioner so the mlc system was like a really smart from their perspective like life support like way to keep the system going that was kind of collapsing um, so I wanted to bring in uh, Ricardo and then Antonio. So Ricardo, why don't you just quickly describe what you've been up to and how you've observed the, the difficulty of the uh, of the sanctions and, and, and why you're interested in this topic? Thank you. Um, so uh, I'm Ricardo Herrera. I'm the executive director of the Cuba Study Group. We're a nonpartisan uh, policy and advocacy organization based here in Washington, D.C., uh, comprised largely of Cuban American businessmen and professionals who are dedicated to helping develop Cuban uh, uh, civil society on the island, 
as well as removing external obstacles to changes inside Cuba. Many of those external obstacles being uh, comprised of U.S. sanctions, particularly those that have a disproportionate impact on the Cuban people. We are not opposed to sanctions per se, uh, just those that have that disproportionate impact on the people that uh, contribute to the hardships that they already experience under the poor economic planning and mismanagement of their own government and help to keep them um, impoverished and lacking resources and the basic needs that they would need in order to be in a better position to demand greater changes from that government. Um, and through, we've been operating for about 20 years now, and with the, uh, with the modest opening of the private sector that we saw take place in Cuba back in 2011, some of our members saw an opportunity uh, to launch a program to train entrepreneurs uh, on the ground, on the fundamentals of how to run a business in Cuba to help cultivate that uh, an entrepreneurial culture within the island, since there were no sort of other uh, alternatives for them to learn the ropes of how to manage a business, how to manage a small business in Cuba. And uh, those members, uh, in partnership with the Catholic Church, were able to launch a program called Cuemprende that does exactly that. It's an, it's an 80-hour workshop that trains entrepreneurs on the fundamentals of running a business within the Cuban context. Everything from general management, marketing, sales, accounting, uh, personal development, uh, you know, profit and loss, risk and reward, a lot of concepts that you are just not learned, uh, you're, you're not taught within the Cuban educational system. Um, after almost 10 years of that program, graduating almost uh, 8,000 entrepreneurs uh, in three different cities in Cuba, Havana, Camagüey, and Cienfuegos, um, we've had sort of a we've had a direct view of a lot of the entrepreneurial activity that's happening on the ground, how entrepreneurs are responding to market signals, uh, how they're responding to new to new opportunities. And we saw that with the um, the tightening of sanctions under Trump and particularly those sanctions that came at the very end of the Trump administration that effectively shut down formal remittance channels to Cuba. Um, and that coupled with the fact that it was very hard to travel to Cuba, both because of U.S. Uh, travel restrictions, but also because of uh, internal lockdowns in which the Cuban government uh, shut down its own airports. The combination of those two factors made it really, really hard for uh, Cubans on the ground to have access to to hard currency. You add to that this uh, 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 to hard foreign currency. Uh, and to receive money from outside. Uh, you add to that the, uh, the monetary unification process that the Cuban government began trying to unify those two currencies, el peso and a convertible pesos, at the beginning of the year, while insisting on having a fixed exchange rate with the U.S. dollar of 24 pesos with a dollar. You saw that process lead to hyperinflation. The dollar, um, the dollar even though the, the the official exchange rate was one to 24 pesos, the street rate turned to one to se up to 70 pesos. And so during this process, we see Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency use start taking off within the island. 
uh, and mostly among many of entrepreneurs that we know that all of a sudden are using cryptocurrency to accept remittances, to, uh, to pay people or receive payments from anywhere within Cuba uh, or in the world. We saw them start using it as trading, speculative trading on online exchanges for the very first time. You know, Cubans have not had access to brokerage accounts for 60 years. So um, it was very interesting to see that happening as well as using it as a store of value uh, to diversify or simply because they don't trust uh, the local currency. Uh, you're seeing it uh, for the purchase of gift cards um, from service providers worldwide, such as Google, Visa cards, et cetera. At the same time, you also see, um, you know, relatedly the sort of uh, the takeoff of NFTs. And you see a lot of artists who previously had direct access to outside markets and could sell their products to clients and, and uh, art collectors throughout the world, all of a sudden they're really embracing NFTs because it's really hard for them to get their, out, their, their art out. Um, and so we see this as a, a practice that is, is only going to increase. Uh, we see adoption as something that is going to, to increase as well. But at the same time, it's a space uh, that as we know, is can be rife with fraud. Uh, there's a lot of people out there trying to uh, hustle others in the space. There's a there's a lack of understanding of how cryptocurrencies work, how Bitcoin works, how wallets work. Um, and so uh, a lot of other people are intimidated and in going into the space. But we do believe that with education and uh, increasing adoption, you'll see network effects and, and, and more and more people jumping, <laughs> jumping into the space. <laughs> And could you just comment? That was awesome. Thank you. And could you just comment also on the Biden administration's like uh, overtures now in terms of like trying to they're saying they want to figure out how to get money to Cubans without the government getting any. And how do you see that like kind of playing out, you know, as you're observing the Bitcoin use? But on the other hand, seeing Secretary Yellen's obvious sort of distaste for Bitcoin, how do you kind of see that playing out? Yeah, that's uh, it's interesting because there's obviously a tension there within the administration. On the one hand, you have Secretary Yellen, others we saw also in the response last a couple of weeks ago to to the Wyden uh, and the Wyden Loomis bill uh, that was part of the infrastructure bill. There, were, there did seem to be some some degree of hostility coming from the administration, but we don't it's hard to it's hard to really pin down what it was that, you know, whether it was against cryptocurrency itself or just the fact that they were trying to get this done quickly. But nonetheless, um, there is an interest now as the administration has made the expansion of Internet a top national security priority. Part of defining what that means, expanding Internet in Cuba is enhancing Internet in Cuba, enhancing online life, allowing Cubans on the ground to have the same access to the wide gamut of Internet tools that the rest of us have outside and enjoy for self-actualization. The fact is that embargo sanctions, uh, U.S. sanctions that have been in the books for a very long time, uh, make, it, make it very difficult for U.S.-based firms to provide cloud-based services uh, like online payment uh, uh, apps or subscription-based platforms in Cuba because those require someone in Cuba to pay for that subscription or to be able to send money out of Cuba or inside Cuba using the banking system. And um, 
although during the Obama opening, we saw Obama lift restrictions or modify the enforcement of restrictions sufficiently so that you would have some of these players going to the space, you still have the embargo and the underlying banking sanctions still in, in place. And a lot of these firms don't see the incentive to go in because it's such a small market. It's so heavily sanctioned. You have OFAC constantly lingering over you. And the fact that policy tends to change so dramatically from one administration to the other that they haven't wanted to their, their own compliance departments have said thanks, but no thanks. And what, unfortunately, what we're what we're seeing is that, you know, putting aside some of these uh, some of these other subscription based platforms, what you're seeing in Cuba is that they're using Chinese wallets or Moldovan wallets or or all sorts of uh, wallets and exchanges that are provided by or created by other countries. Um, and. Russian wallet, Sorry, Russian, even, Russian even though. wallets, right? Which, which are <laughs> in practical terms, you know, they help solve the problem right now, right? They, they are able, they, they enable Cubans on the ground to be able to send and receive uh, 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 Bitcoin. But there's nothing to keep any of these wallets from being seized from one of these, by one of these governments, as we've seen them do in other places, just because, and then Cubans lose access to all their money in the process. Also, there's a real serious compliance risk because, as I mentioned, um, you know, when, when dealing with the United States, these wallets don't provide uh, any sort any of don't don't manage the compliance side or don't help the user manage the compliance side because they're from other countries. They don't care. U.S. wallets, U.S. based firms could help manage that compliance side or reduce the, the risk on the final user the same way that we've seen with Western Union and remittance and transmitters that take on that compliance work on behalf of the end user to, to make sure that they don't run afoul of sanctions. Awesome, thank you. Um, so obviously, yeah, there's a lot of like risk. Of, uh, sure, so like US businesses are hesitant to get involved. Uh, so uh, Alex, did you mean to mute, uh, mean to mute yourself? Um, <clears throat> No, no, no. Sorry. Sorry about that. So before I ask Antonio to jump in, um, I'll just uh, rehash like the, the one of the people I, I interviewed for the story uh, is a 30 year old healthcare worker living in um, Matanzas. And, you know, she's like um, very. She's. um. Uh, let's say pro-government, like like very pro-government, like very pro-revolution. Um, and yet, uh, and and yet she she's very into Bitcoin, and she actually found about she found out about Bitcoin through the the Kaiser report that Max and Stacy run. It airs on it airs on, um, on state TV, and that's how she found out about it. And she thinks that Bitcoin is uh, both going to help her with personal freedom and also freedom uh, from from the U.S., which which I which I just think is is kind of interesting. So um, the reason I, um, I I thought it'd be interesting to have Antonio here is that he did a really great um, overview of the of Cuba's transition to the internet age about four years ago, um, and and um, it was it was superbly done. And obviously he's had time to look, to look at uh, what's happened since. So it'd be interesting just Antonio to hear your reflections on what's happening here. Um, you know, in general. So why don't you join us for, for a little bit? 
Um, thanks for having me, Alex. It's weird. I, I feel like I'm the person here who knows the least about Cuban Bitcoin, but I'll try to uh, to add value, as one says. Um, so yeah, like Alex said, in 2017, I, I traveled to Cuba for for Wired magazine and did a whole piece on uh, topics that are pretty probably pretty familiar to everyone here. Uh, things like the paquete and uh, Snet back when it existed. Which, for those who don't know what those things are, um, these are the sort of um, very resourceful hacks that Cubans used to get on the internet, um, certainly before they had uh, 3G data on their phones. Just as a very brief summary, I, I think everyone knows internet's difficult to get and expensive in Cuba. Up until relatively recently, you had to go to these open squares with Wi-Fi. Um, most people actually sort of downloaded the internet. Well, they didn't download it themselves, but specialized people downloaded the internet and then they would actually carry it around sort of in hard drives and USB drives. So the internet to us, right, was this sort of offline thing to them. Um, and there was also this ad hoc wireless network called SNET, started by gamers. In any case, it was all over a, a huge hack. But um, and again, some of the people here would be more familiar than I would. But starting something like a year or two ago, officially in 2018, uh, you actually got 3G uh, data on phones. And um, the interesting thing there is that, again, Cubans, in fact, it's funny because I'm actually in a signal group with Cubans right now. You know, they, they were actually able to use, you know, Internet in the way that we we think of it as like, you know, this little black mirror on our phone that refracts all of reality and that you can use to share video and all the rest of it. And so um, as I wrote in a recent piece for The Washington Post about this, um, you know, it's we're, we're seeing Cubans use Internet for the first time, kind of in the sense that that we that we think about it. And you know, that clearly contributed to a lot of the, the protests as, um, that happened. Um, but that yeah, I, was there anything particularly you wanted me to talk about, Alex, about that side of things? Did we lose Alex? No, no, I'm here. Um, no, just like you observed Cubans kind of coming online through uh, Wi-Fi and then later through through data. Yeah. Uh, what what are your thoughts about this financial um, transformation here? I know that you had told me that you were concerned or you thought that it would be stopped by the government. But I mean, can you do you want to just detail that a little more? Well, I, again, I'm guessing people like Eric probably have a lot more to say here, but I mean, you know, I mean, I think you highlighted the the switch from 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 CUC to Demose very well. Um, I mean, you know, the remittances are a huge source of hard currency uh, for the island and the government, right? And um, uh, yeah, it, it seems like it would be hard for me to imagine a way in which um, that flow of hard cash would sort of cease. But um, I, other people in this in this room have spent a lot more time trying to figure out how to do that. Um, I, I I do wonder, just getting back to the internet topic. Um, you know, one thing about Bitcoin and access to the blockchain and double spending problem is that the Internet kind of has to be reliably on for it to for, typically for it to work very well. And so I'm, I'm curious. Everything is so unique about Cuba, right? Like everything is just strange about it. Um, I'm curious if those who have thought about Bitcoin more in this room have thought about how it would work in the context of Cuba, where, where you do have pretty unique constraints. That's it's a great point. I mean, Eric, do you want to you're literally telling us you're about to go you're in a blackout. I mean, does does the internet going on and off like does that really impact your business or, or tell us? Well, yeah, uh, I'm still in a blackout with a twenty five percent in the battery. Um, as as told Antonio, uh, yeah, the 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 most used case in Cuba with the Bitcoin is obviously remittances. The people are finding that channel to to provide money. Then with peer-to-peer -peer networks here in the in the ground, 
but I, I see this um, problem um, one step ahead. I'm, I'm trying to teach my, my community. I'm trying to, to get understanding to the Cuban people. They can do business over internet using Bitcoin, not just remittances, not just uh, send me money and I will deliver to the, to the client here. Oh man, you, you have to learn, you have to make payment gateways, you have to, to start selling your products. With the, with the internet cut off, of course, the, the business are, are down. So it, it happened if, if Amazon website down, they lose uh, millions, millions of dollars. It's the same here in Cuba. Even, even more because, as you told before, the, the internet in Cuba was very delayed uh, in, the, in the approach to the people. So if the people get, get internet since two, three years ago, they are now susceptible to the common scams and common phishing uh, in the in the in the in, in their in their um, needed in 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 the in the lower amount of of internet culture. So uh, and that's is a is a real problem. So how do you teach the to the people? Uh, to use correctly internet if they are not prepared to have the internet they have. Uh, and that's a, a, a right. huge problem. Go ahead. This is the final thought. So the, the world is using Bitcoin as freedom. So the, 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 the world understanding how to use Bitcoin because they, they are feel more free but the Cubans are using Bitcoin as a necessity. They, they don't yet understand that Bitcoin provides freedom. They using Bitcoin as a necessity to get some stuff over internet. And that's my, my principal fear because I'm afraid about it. Because when sometime, I don't know, when the government just don't, don't exist anymore, sometime they will have the the tools and they have the payment solutions that the world use then i don't know if they if they will still using bitcoin because that necessity will be supplied by the by the payment solution or the business model over internet uh that's that that is the the two two ways of using bitcoin one part of the world are using it as freedom, but I see in the Cuban community they are using as necessity. Uh, that's a that's a, a, a situation to study. Some some some, some absolutely, some. yeah. And you see that in Iran and Palestine and many other places. It's not like a luxury; it's actually like the best money that people have. Um, one thing I wanted to get Boas's opinion on something, but uh, one thing to note is that I mean the adoption of Bitcoin is kind of like the adoption of the internet. Uh, the difference being that it's happening roughly at the same time as the adoption of Bitcoin in the United States. Like from Eric's estimates, it looks like roughly the same percentage of people in, in Cuba are using Bitcoin as in America. So that's very different from the internet, which came to Cuba way later. So Cubans actually are on kind of like equal ground, let's say, with regard to Bitcoin as Americans, which is really interesting to see. Same with Nigerians, Iranians, etc. It's like a very different different story than the internet itself. 
um, but it is totally neutral and open. So the interesting thing is you have, just like you have communists in Cuba who use the internet, of course, um, including the government, um, they use Bitcoin too. And again, some of the people I spoke to in my story were ardent communists who really support the Cuban revolution. <laughs> they just, their view on Bitcoin is that it will help them liberate themselves from the dollar and from American influence. Now, it's kind of ironic yeah. because I, I, I don't think that they realize that, or maybe they do, but at the end of the day, like uh, communism is about the government's ability to plan centrally and redistribute resources and Bitcoin like prevents that. So it, it will be interesting to see how they resolve that uh, in, apparent kind of intellectual contradiction. Um, but there are a lot of communists who use Bitcoin in Cuba, just like there's a lot of communists who use the internet. It's not just for like human rights activists. In fact, some of the human rights activists I interviewed didn't even know about Bitcoin. The, the Cuban human rights movement is not that into Bitcoin yet. That's something obviously I'd like to help with. But um, I think it's worth pointing out that this is not some sort of like human rights first thing. It's like very kind of cross uh, society. And it's, it's, you know, really just a, people are using it because they can't use anything else. Um, so Boas, maybe you could actually talk because some of the people you connected me to educated me about the scams and, and how actually a lot of Cubans got Bitcoin first to, to give to these scams, like, like um, trust, trust investing or RB star or yeah, whatever. Literally. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, or, so Bas, do you yeah. want to comment on yeah, some yeah. of that? So, so back when, uh, you know, back when my business was still alive and I had to, you know, sell, um, you know, relatively large quantities of Bitcoin on a weekly basis. Some of our biggest, you know, some purchasers, some people that bought Bitcoin from us were, you know, businesses um, that wanted to, you know, import things, businesses, the people that wanted to move their money abroad. Um, you know, there were all sorts of people, but one of our biggest purchasers were associations of these um, basically MLM Ponzi scheme scam types of people, things. And, you know, I, I sat down with them and I explained to them, like, guys, you're aware, you know, you know that this is probably a scam. And, you know, it's, it's very hard to explain to people um that what they're doing is 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 you know that they're being swindled right no one wants to hear that um in any case um the these ponzi schemes in cuba were absolutely i mean are or were absolutely huge you know pretty much everyone knew someone that had invested at some point or another in one of these you know numerous uh, ponzi schemes and basically, you had a very similar situation to what you had in Eastern Europe at the fall of the of the Iron Curtain, right? So in Eastern Europe at the fall of of you know of the Soviet Union, you've all of a sudden you've got open borders, you've got all of these sort of people with you know promoting capitalism and free enterprise, and people that just grew up in a state planned economy just had no natural antibodies to these scams right they had no way of recognizing that if it sounds too good to be true then it's not true because they were just you know biased towards everything being shit because the government runs all the shops um and then you know in in many you know in, in some countries it led to civil war in albania etc in romania governments fell there's all sorts of things ended up happening in Eastern Europe in the 90s with this big Ponzi schemes, multi-billion dollar Ponzi schemes. And in Cuba, uh, cryptocurrencies, ironically, have kind of made that possible, right? Because all of a sudden, um, you know, you 
it's possible to live in Florida or Mexico or anywhere in the world and recruit people to run some MLM scheme in Cuba. And I, I just found this, you know, incredibly terrible because the, the people that were getting scammed are some of the people, you know, with the least amount of resources on the American continent. And yet, you know, a very, very big percentage of the country was was falling for these scams and, and you know, basically um, using using Bitcoin. And many people, you know, got to know cryptocurrencies as a means to, to participate in, in, in these scams. And the government didn't really crack down on them up until very, very recently. I mean, I don't maybe Eric knows more about what's going on right now, but I know that for a long, long time yeah. they did nothing. Well, yeah, that's that's right. Um, I, I, I have I have a internal joke um, which says all Ponzi scams over there worldwide target Cuba as the principal niche because the Cuban people um, just buy that shitty stuff uh, immediately because of course uh, poor people. Um, low low knowledge about the MLM and those Ponzi scams get the Cuban uh, a principal market to those scams. Uh, here we had a very strong community using trust investing. I just uh, make a few statements about it and got a lot of hate, of course. Uh, and yeah, the government got in prison the the principals heads here in Cuba. I, I think they are about five or six Cuban persons. Uh, and yeah, the, the the official announcement is the government doesn't care about the Cubans using cryptocurrency so far. But they are uh very strong with the with the people who who do or who participate or who uh, make propaganda pro promotion propaganda about these Ponzi is scams. Uh, that's the official uh, posture about it. Well, one of the things that I wanted to discuss with you all here, and um, maybe maybe Ricardo has uh, some thoughts, is how do we know the government in Cuba is actually starting to understand Bitcoin? Because um, obviously if their goal is to accumulate hard currency, um, you know, one of the is by starting to accept Bitcoin at the MLC stores. Um, obviously they haven't done that yet, but I'm, I'm interested to hear from the room as to like, let's say if the government in Cuba did start to understand Bitcoin as like a, a hard currency that like other governments didn't control, like how might they start go about, you know, how, how might we start seeing signs, you know, maybe Ricardo, you want to go first and maybe we'll hear from the others. Sure. Um, so, well, the, in the most recent party Congress, uh, the eighth party Congress of the Cuban communist party, which took place earlier this year, uh, the government proposed a new, uh, lineamiento or, or guidance is kind of like this prime directives that they announce every five years during these party congresses that called on the country to move forward with the with the study of crypto assets in the current conditions of the economy. 
it seems that the government right now, it seems, and this can change any day, um, is taking sort of a wait and see approach to how cryptocurrency use materializes on the ground in Cuba. By some estimates, as Eric has pointed out, there are probably around 300,000 uh, Cubans that have used cryptocurrency for some purpose at some point on the island. We don't know if those numbers have increased in recent days or recent weeks, um, but, uh, but it is foreseeable that you're going to see adoption spread. As it spreads, as we've often seen with the Internet, then there is sort of that underlying tension um, between uh, allowing an activity that, that is in many ways beneficial to the society to continue to spread and that helps people and helps solve problems and helps put money in people's pockets so that they can purchase things. And that need from certain sectors within the government uh, to control all sorts of activity that takes place in Cuba. You're seeing that with the internet, right? With the internet in general, uh, just in, you know, we saw uh, after the Obama opening, the, the Cuban government made a commitment to start expanding internet access on the island. We saw immediately thereafter uh, the, exp uh, the opening of public Wi-Fi hotspots throughout the country, something that didn't exist before. Prior to then, Cuba had the lowest connectivity rate in the hemisphere. Um, from there, you saw internet access, uh, internet use continue to grow and grow. In 2008, they introduced 3G on phones. And, I mean, in 2018, they introduced 3G on phone. In 2019, you had 4G and you also had Nauta Hogar, which was broadband access inside of homes in Cuba. And all of a sudden you see this explosion of expression throughout Cuba, whereas before the people that you tended to hear expressing their voices on Twitter and on Facebook, um, Facebook, by the way, being a platform that also before the Obama opening was not accessible in Cuba because of compliance issues here on the U.S. side. But that opening allowed Facebook to say, OK, we're going to start providing services in Cuba. Same thing with YouTube and some of the and some other U.S. firms. Um, but you see that explosion of, of expression take off, something we had never seen before. Prior to that, it, you would see a handful of dissidents or other civil society activists, et cetera, that had access to these platforms and would use them to communicate. All of a sudden, it was everybody, the same way that we see anywhere else in the world. Uh, and it was quick. It was sudden and it was fierce. And it was immediately responded to by the government with laws that tried to control expression on the Internet. Um, there was a, such a law pa passed in, uh, in 2019. It was the Decreto 370. And now just today, they announced another law uh, this morning in which the state becomes the arbiter of what's considered fake news, offensive messaging, or anything that could besmirch the national prestige of the country, right? So it's just doubling down on censorship in, on the island. Um, so it's a constant dance. It's a constant tension. Right now, they're allowing cryptocurrency use to expand. We don't know where it's going to go, um, but we you can foresee that if they feel that enough people are being empowered by this and enough people are becoming to be are, are becoming more independent of the government within their own borders, there's going to be efforts from within the government to try to regulate this down the line. OK, yeah. and then. I'd like Go to ahead, quickly follow up on that. So, so yeah, like Rick is, you know, pointed out very correctly that the government 
is adopting this wait and see approach, but it's not just you know some small clauses in 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 the legislative side of things. You know the some of the main pro-government newspapers, such as Kualeuate, have put up several very thoughtful essays and articles on the topic of cryptocurrencies. Um, the Cuban National Bank itself has shared on Twitter of all places information about you know cryptocurrencies and it's fairly evident that within all parts of the government um you know they're they think they're actively thinking about bitcoin and cryptocurrencies um and this is within the context of venezuela right venezuela is a key cuban ally and in venezuela cryptocurrencies have become part of of the government's sort of repertoire of, of, of tools. So I wouldn't be surprised to see some sort of strongly pro-crypto, um, you know, product or, or, or something come out of, of the Cuban government. But we have to keep that in mind that, the you know, the Cuban government is not necessarily a, a, a highly technologically advanced government. And, um, you know, most of the people in power are you know not exactly millennials so um you know these are the things that you have to keep in mind when 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 you're thinking about this but long story is they're definitely looking at it yeah if if i can add to to what boas just shared it, you know they have to be looking at this as a double-edged sword right on one on the one hand it helps provide financial resistance financial censorship resistance insofar as u.s banking sanctions are concerned so that has to be appealing to the Cuban government, right? Because Bitcoin and the free flow of, of digital assets uh, helps them evade those sanctions or helps people on the ground evade those sanctions. Same with but Iran, at, same with but Iran at, right? Exactly. But at the same time, it reduces exposure. It reduces the people's exposures to their own unreliable currency and monetary policymaking. Right. As well as to their own restrictions on private commerce. So there's a there's an inherent tension there and we're, it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out in the coming years. Right. So the, the idea would be um, and Eric would be interesting to hear your perspective on this. But if the Cuban government simply just started accepting Bitcoin at the MLC stores, I mean, that would allow them to accumulate the hard currency while continuing to force the Cuban people to buy MLC, to buy stuff, right? Like, Eric, what do you, what do you think about that idea? <laughs> that's, uh, uh, well, that's uh, really, really, I say that as um, pink sky. The, the sky is blue, and that's, that, that idea is uh, just pink sky. It's too, it's too pretty to be true. <laughs> Uh, well, the, well not that, the, the Cuban not, say, not that everybody necessarily wants the government to figure out how to. Okay, it, okay. Go ahead. No, no, no. Okay, okay. Um, of course, the Cuban the Cuban Communist Party so say that they are studying the cryptocurrency as a payment or a solution with the precarious economy in Cuba. I don't know. I use crypto as private use. I don't. I don't have any idea with the government ideas. But, but, um, I think they are. They 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 gonna be some kind of experiments. With let's assume tomorrow they say, 
uh, okay, this as as okay tomorrow they say this hotel in Baradero is now with uh, Bitcoin, and we are making this kind of experiment with this hotel in Baradero using Bitcoin, and they will of course measure that, make some studies and see if they are if that is applicable to the whole country using bitcoin in the mlc stores just um that will make a very very important um, phenomenal in cuba because this the cuban right now are trying to find a way using crypto um to top up their mlc cards And that way, mainly, is from 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 a, a remittance, an in, inverted remittance. So the, the people in the world send remittance to Cuba through Bitcoin, Bitcoin, and then the Cuban people sell that Bitcoin in peer-to-peer -peer markets and pay to the remittance clients with COP. But the people has have no MLC, so the the, the Cuban need the MLC to to provide themselves in the MLC stores. If Cuban put the MLC store in Bitcoin, that's a huge movement to the to the press, to the world, to the Cuban people, because then they will don't have the necessity to change those Bitcoin through a friend outside the world to that friend send a remittance in MLC from Euro, Europe or any other bank with, with um, SWIFT codes with the Cuban banks. Uh, that will be a, a very strong movement. But knowing the government, as I know, uh, I don't know. They are so, right. so the, low. The, they are... My conclusion, Eric, was kind of like, after talking to you and so many others, was that you're not going to wait around for your government to make a more fair system and you're not going to wait around for the Biden administration to to drop the embargo like it's it could take it could be forever right so in the meantime of you're course. just going to seize your own freedom and start using this currency that they don't control i think that's kind of like the conclusion yeah. the thing that the big takeaway um just for people who've come in more recently very briefly i just would want to underline how ridiculous it is that the cuban government still pays out Uh, to, again, people in the pub public sector, most of the workers, plus pensioners, in the peso, which is collapsing, which has lost two-thirds of its value in the last year, you know, from $24 to a dollar to $70 to a dollar, essentially. Um, and, and, it, and yet, it, it forces Cubans to buy stuff in stores with the MLC, which can only be bought with foreign currency. So you, as a Cuban who makes pesos, mm -hmm. cannot top up your MLC card, which you need to buy stuff, With the, with the national currency. You actually have to go and get pounds or euros or Canadian dollars. You, you can't mm -hmm. use dollars because of, of the American policy that, that Trump changed. But I, I found this just so comically tragic. I mean, it's insane. I mean, it's, it's like a legitimate rug pull. I mean, they're, they're giving you this like increasingly worthless currency and they're expecting you to give hard currency back. I, I just found it so infuriating. Um, and it's it's really interesting to, yeah. to see people, you know, you know, protest, let's say, peacefully through Bitcoin. It's obviously a rock pole. It's, it is. But 
that's why because the, that's that that that's because the Cuban are trying to buy stuff outside and trying to use Bitcoin as um, payment solution to foreign companies, uh, and they are they are uh, making it. So I don't see. Uh, of course, the government will try to to provide products and service in Bitcoin, but how do they then? What 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 they do then with those bitcoins? Uh, this is not El Salvador. This is not uh, I don't know how how they then use that bitcoin to to make um, a profitable business. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't. I I see it. I see it in the future. Let me say, but I don't know with the bureaucracy and the delays of everything here, it will take some time. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I thought was worth noting uh, was that, look, the American government has spent hundreds of millions of dollars in democracy promotion in Cuba, um, and it obviously hasn't really worked. Um, and yet, uh, this TV show run by Max and Max Kaiser and, and Stacey Herbert has uh, has kind of like, you know, it, it's aired for years on Cuban state television, courtesy, whether it was RT or Telesor, which is kind of interesting, but, you know, they air it on TV and Cubans are learning about Bitcoin through it. And I just found it so hugely ironic that a, you know, like, like state socialist propaganda television is actually teaching people how to achieve personal freedom, you know, more effectively yeah. than like hundreds of millions of dollars worth of democracy promotion money. I, I don't know if like any of you have thoughts on that. I just thought that was crazy. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting. Yeah, it's 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 a really interesting thing because that's right. Bitcoin provides freedom. Bitcoin provides uh, you have your own money in your pocket, and that's not. It's very aligned with the with, with the communist. But well, man, this is this is the the game rules. We have to to get used yeah, to it. Yeah, I, I if I can add to that, I think. Uh... You know, the example that Alex just shared just goes to show how it is incredibly hard, if not impossible, to try to micromanage processes of change in Cuba from Washington among, uh, you know, other federally funded programs that operate in Cuba or anyone outside that's trying to try to micromanage these processes. That example just of how people are using or through RT, you, learning how to use cryptocurrency in Cuba shows the chaotic and unpredictable nature of these things. And really how the best way to really create an enabling environment for change in Cuba is to remove external obstacles to that change and do everything we can to expand the flow of resources, of capital, of information, of contacts to the Cuban people. Unfortunately, we're in a place right now where both governments uh, are doing, uh, doing, it seems, their mightiest to prohibit or limit that, that access to outside resources. The Cuban government, uh, with many of its own uh, measures to limit access to, to currency, to limit to uh, its, its, its completely disastrous uh, monetary policy, its, its endless lockdowns in response to covid uh, and on the U.S. side, you saw this maximum pressure campaign during the during the Trump years uh, that had a disproportionate impact on the people, really limited their ability to have access to the tools they need in order to 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 advance the liberties that they seek. Um, and unfortunately, we're in a place where we don't know 
when you look at the future as to, you know, is, is the Cuban government going to change? Are they going to liberalize? There is very few indicators that suggest that they're going to liberalize anytime soon, politically or economically. They've taken some some modest measures, but every time, even now, they're, they're, they're announcing small and medium-sized enterprises. It's expected that those new those new legal entities to uh, to foster small business creation are going to come with all sorts of restrictions. We're seeing them trying to censor uh, 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 free expression on the internet even more. And on the same side, on the other side of the token, in on the U.S. side, with sanctions and the embargo being codified and being on the hands of Congress, there's nothing right now on the horizon that suggests that that embargo is going to go anywhere anytime soon. So you have both governments failing a people and Bitcoin really providing a lifeline. And that is what's so key and why we think this tool is so powerful right now, because while their access to outside resources is being limited in in myriad other ways, thanks to government action, Bitcoin is actually taking off. Um, Thank you. That was pithy. Um, Antonio, one one thing I wanted to get your take on, obviously you kind of concluded uh, somewhat grimly a few years ago that even though the internet was coming to Cuba, that like it, it, it wasn't really maybe going to change things entirely. And how do you interpret um, what just happened this month with July 11th and the fact that this whole crazy large protest movement, the biggest really since 59 on the island against the government, was started from a Facebook post, and yet it was kind of snuffed out, kind of? Like, what's your interpretation of, of this? Of this? You know, that's that's a good point. I mean, as we've seen, I think since my piece came out, um, you know, the, the Internet is kind of a consensus destruction machine, for, for better or worse. Um, if you look at examples like, I mean, obviously the Arab Spring is an obvious one, or the Gilets Jaunes, uh, the Yellow Jacket protests in France, or even the Dignal in Spain, or even to a certain extent in, in the United States. Um, and it just seems like it's crimped tonight to any sort of top-down consensus mechanism, right? And if we're talking about Cuba, obviously there's a lot of uh, top-down, quote-unquote, consensus going on. And so it, it, I mean, the fact that you look now on Twitter and you see, like, Diaz Canel, like, tweeting into the Patria Vida hashtag to try to, like, bomb it, and that you even have, you know, and him engaging with Mia Khalifa, you know, there's all the usual hijinks of, like, ridiculous, absurd online life with, what is this very status party? Um, it, it's fascinating to me how quickly it's happened. And I mean, yeah, some part of me, and maybe I'm being an optimist or a patriot or whatever, thinks that it's kind of impossible for the state of affairs to continue. Um, it, it Somehow it seems to me that you can't actually have, you know, networked, decentralized, ubiquitous computing, i.e. smartphones in everyone's pocket, and you have um, what is this very authoritarian government. I, I just don't see how those two can coexist, but maybe I'm being overly optimistic. Eric probably thinks I'm crazy. But um but but yeah, again, if if you look at if you look at previous examples, it's it's difficult to maintain a common narrative in any scenario, in any scenario, um, with uh the internet there. Or it could be co-opted, right? I mean there's a Chinese solution. The the Chinese have taken a different route, which is that they just reproduce the internet and then they just police it heavily. Right. And that would be an alternative. I mean there there you do have basically copies of the internet and they also have to VPN out and all the rest of it. But, you know, they do have Internet and they do have an authoritarian government. Um, Eric, I mean, what do, do you, are, are, you know, does your business, is your business sort of planning for any kind of 
crackdown or, or, or are you just kind of sailing in open water here? Like what's your, what's your thought about a potential restrictions or laws that might make it harder for you to do what you're doing? Well, that's a, that's a recurrent question. Look, right now I am a developer. I'm, I am a Bitcoiner who loves the blockchain and thinking about um, making solution using Bitcoin, using blockchains to the world. But I live in Cuba and my, my community and my business niche is the Cuban people. Right now, I have no problems because I'm just develop um, a peer-to-peer network, which is the is the people who is trading with the fiat currency and Bitcoin or any or any other cryptocurrencies. Uh, so far, I have no 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 deal, no no problem with that. Maybe in the future, I'm trying to develop another things which are more social or more uh, business model and focus it in, into a real business model. But right now with the remittance model and the payment solutions with crypto model, uh, I have no problem with that so far. Yeah, just- uh, I, I, am, I, am a, I am a developer which pay for the, for the taxes monthly uh, and so far, as I told you before, I have no problem with that. So that that's my main concern about the government's posture about Bitcoin. Because with Bitcoin, we have a lot of opportunities and a lot of um, solutions. We uh, we in in in, a, in, a, in in another case, we have no that solution. We can't as Cuban buy for anything in the u.s market eric what do you but you eric what do you um say to um on the wet like a lot of people in america say that bitcoin is useless it has no social value it's like a waste of energy (laughs) what's your what what is your response like what do you say to them (laughs) well bitcoin changed my life in september i i i i can't (laughs) say anything else September 2020, Bitcoin changed my life in a one hundred uh, in a radical way. So, the people who say Bitcoin is waste is wasting energy, Bitcoin is useless, they just don't understand the freedom that provides Bitcoin. And I can tell them the amount of of, of open opportunities and, uh, and the amount of Cuban people right now living thanks to Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, just to, so... just to give you an example, when I was interviewing someone, um, you know, last week, I, I, I sent them some Bitcoin over the Lightning Network and it, you know, I sent value instantly yeah. and we didn't have to worry about the embargo or the government or any of that stuff. And I, I just think it's such a powerful yeah. tool that Cubans are using regardless of whether or not the Americans or the Cuban government uh cares or yeah. even permits them i told you i told you in the interview we live in the matrix in the matrix we live in a space which is not ruled by the government and not ruled by the sanctions uh we live in a special matrix which provide us freedom everywhere 
I'd, I'd like to circle back to something that Eric has mentioned and Rick has also touched upon. Um, I feel like a lot of people, particularly in the West, they view Bitcoin as a sort of like freaky tech thing that tech bros used to speculate with, etc. The thing is, for many, many people um, in Cuba, it's actually an essential tool. Like you, you, you actually need it. There's very little that you can do without it. You know, if you don't have a Visa or a MasterCard or, you know, American Express or PayPal or whatever. And, you know, you want to start a business or do whatever or anything else. Um, you need Bitcoin. They, you have no other option, right? Like, you want to start a business, you want to start, you know, you, you want to buy a domain, you want to set up your website, you want to host your website, you want to do anything, you want to take payments, you want to, you know, anything you want to do online that involves spending money, uh, you want to buy phone cases on eBay or Amazon or Alibaba or whatever. You need a way of paying, and if you don't, if you cut off from all the traditional ways of paying or what we call traditional ways of paying, then you know Bitcoin is is no longer this beautiful theoretical techie thing that tech bros used to speculate on and get rich. It's actually super fucking essential. You need it. There's nothing else that you can do. Like, there's absolutely nothing else that you can do. And honestly, I just don't see how that's a waste of energy. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that uh, someone from the U.S. government obviously has been here. That's great. Um, we assume that people from the Cuban government are here. That's great. Uh, you know, we want people to know about this uh, unstoppable thing that's happening, and hopefully they can adjust their plans accordingly. Uh, if the Cuban government would start accepting Bitcoin NLCs, that would be great. If the American government would start operationalizing the use of Bitcoin and aiding the Cuban people, that would also be great. Um, one thing I thought would be worth pointing out is, is just some numbers around how the Cuban government makes money. Cuban, the Cuban government's top revenue source is was shocking to me. I, I was slightly ignorant of this, I will have to say, but it's actually the export of medical personnel to other countries. And, you know, and let's say before 2020, when the pandemic hit and turned everything upside down, they were making like $11 billion a year from like basically sending these doctors to countries like Venezuela and Brazil, et cetera. And then like they take 75% of the salary. So it's, it's kind of like indentured servitude in a way. <clears throat> really, really crazy. It's tens of thousands of these people. And it's a really smart thing for them to do because then they can leverage it for PR and it makes them look uh, really good internationally. Um, and then, of course, tourism is number two. And then number three, arguably, look, depending on the sugar crop, is, is, is remittances. And I mean, they get $3 billion a year. So one of the interesting things that you have to keep in mind is that today, Bitcoin is just a small percentage, of course, of this flow. Um, but traditionally, the Cuban government makes money off the remittances. Like, the, the, like before the digital age, essentially, when money came in, as dollars, it had to be converted to CUC, and that's when they would take a 10% plus cut, um, and, and they would sort of like use it as a, a profit generation machine. Um, today, uh, again, they're forcing you to buy MLCs, and they're making money that way. So Bitcoin definitely threatens their profit generation machine. So it stands to reason that if it did grow big enough, that it was like a certain percentage of the $3 billion, that, that they would take action. It's just unclear like what exactly they could do. Um, I don't know if like Boas or, or Ricardo have thoughts on that. Well, you, you, you can fight them or you can join them. 
that's the the mainly question that's the 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 <laughs> the question right now uh as i told you before i don't see mlc store selling with bitcoin but i i do really see um in, uh, government services like i don't know maybe the doctors or maybe some kind of tourist experiences or or rum or tobacco i don't know but i i really see in a far future the commercialization with with bitcoin in a in in a government space but that has nothing to do with the cuban um, private sector and the cuban people we using right now Bitcoin with their solution. Um, one, one thing that might be interesting to point out as well, Boas, would be a bit refill. Um, I, I spoke to one Cuban for my article who basically lives entirely off Bitcoin in terms of he spends it for everything. So, for example, um, myself. <laughs> yeah, myself. you too. I mean, but someone else also. Uh, like when they want to top up their phone, they use BitRefill to, to use Bitcoin to buy minutes and data i mean they they have this kind of informal like kind of like cypherpunk uber eats where they um they they like pay someone in bitcoin to come deliver them food uh they buy pretty much everything they need in bitcoin it's really interesting and obviously eric you would admit that you're like on the frontier you're like an early, very early adopter of this kind of lifestyle but it, it, it's interesting to know that it's possible inside a closed communist regime you can you can live off Bitcoin. I mean, it's just fascinating. So um, maybe, Boris, you could you could talk a little bit about BitRefill and, and what kind of those platforms make possible. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's shout out BitRefill. That's you know here in the audience with us. I can see the little B um, there in the corner. Um, yeah, BitRefill is an amazing service because it allows people to basically uh, spend their Bitcoin within Cuba on any you know on. For instance, government, um, you know, the, the, in, in, in Cuba, there's a government uh, monopoly on telecommunications. So if you want to buy Internet or you want to buy cell phone minutes, you have to buy it from the government um, telecommunications company. And BitRefill makes it possible for you to buy um, these things online. And BitRefill is also amazing because, you know, once you've got your Bitcoin, not only can you use it to top your phone and buy things, you can also do it, you know, sorry, buy minutes online. You can also buy things on Amazon, things on eBay, etc. Things pretty much everywhere on the internet through, through, through gift cards. And that makes it possible for you as a Cuban to, and BitRefill and tools like that makes it possible for you as a Cuban that has no access to PayPal or MasterCard or Visa to actually spend your money online in the way a normal person would spend their money online. Um, and it's very small things that, you know, to us might not mean that much. But, you know, one of my friends, I showed her how she could get her own Netflix subscription on BitRefill. And, you know, she had tears of joy because, you know, usually... Cubans are excluded from these things. If you're Cuban and you go on any website and you want to sign up and they ask you where you're from, you scroll down the list of countries and, you know, under Costa Rica, you, you basically skip, skip Cuba. Like Cuba doesn't exist. It's not a country because all of these countries don't want you to, to you know, all of these websites don't want you to sign up if you're Cuban. And, you know, this feeling of exclusion 
is is so deep and it's so hurtful as well because obviously this is not the intention of whoever made these american sanction laws that you know people from cuba can't fucking use netflix um but that's what's happened and the fact that um someone had tears of joy from being able to sign up to use netflix and feel like a normal person from a normal part of the world um you know that's just incredible and it speaks to the power that these tools give to people Yeah, when when I say to the people I'm using Netflix, I buy over Walmart, I send uh, flowers to my to my cousin in Miami as uh, birthday holidays. The people doesn't believe me because how 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 do you do that? Well, Bitter Fieldman, that's the solution. You, and of course, Eric Bitter. or Boaz, could one of you just quickly walk through? Like, if I just sent you. Uh, some Bitcoin right now. H how would you go about like getting a Netflix subscription from inside Cuba? Like, can you just help us? Because I think a lot of people here don't understand that. Like, they don't realize that that's possible. Okay, I'm I'm happy to tell you guys how I used to use BitRefill. So BitRefill, you 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 know, you basically you you, you top up your Bitcoin, you send your Bitcoin um, to your BitRefill account. So that's that's you know. Um, basically, custodial BitRefill has access to those Bitcoins. And then within BitRefill, there's this big online market where you can spend it on all sorts of online services. So you can buy, let's say, Amazon gift cards that you can then spend on Amazon, or you can buy, um, you know, cell phone minutes that you can then, for, for your community communication. Could you detail the KYC or the lack of KYC, you know, the KYC part? There's, as, as far as, I mean, as far as I can remember, there's no KYC, right? Because you no, know, there is no, no, there isn't. Yeah, so you can you can just use Bitcoin basically right. to, to spend so, your money so you're, you know, online through BitRefill. Digital cash here, folks. This is real digital cash. Go ahead. Yeah, maybe Eric has has more up to date experiences, but that that's that's sort of what I was. I mean, I was using it to top up the phones of the people that work with me because I needed to stay in touch with them and I needed them to be online. So I used, just used BitRefill because it was the most simple, most convenient thing to do. Thanks. I mean, Ricardo, do you have a perspective on how services like BitRefill are filling the void and where the U.S. government is kind of shooting itself in the foot? Yeah, um, I mean, here... Obviously, by us limiting the ability of Cubans on the island to access these platforms and uh, these payment systems, they're having to re you know, resort to using sites like BitRefill or anything else that they find online. I don't know enough about re re BitRefill and who manages this, but I think there's, there's a big there's a big uh, you know, there's a big risk here insofar as. Current OFAC sanctions still apply apply to the sending of cryptocurrency as a form of payment, as a form, form of currency to the United States. And there is a risk that if you are sending right now under current OFAC sanctions, if you are sending someone remittance to Cuba through crypto and you exceed the, the current OFAC limits, you are in violation of that, of that OFAC uh, sanction and you don't even know it. Right. If, if, if you were sending remittances through Western Union, Western Union would 
would enforce a limit. It would say, you cannot send more than $1,000. We will not allow it. These platforms don't. So you can be in violation of OFAC sanctions right now and not even know it if you're sending money to Cuba. Uh, so it, it falls on the user to have to become knowledgeable as to what are the current OFAC enforced sanctions or limitations on sending money to Cuba, on using services in Cuba, and so on and so forth. This is why it's so necessary to revise those sanctions to help make this kind of activity, get it away from the black market and make this activity formal, make it legal, make it easily accessible and risk-free for people who all they want to do is help empower Cubans on the ground. Um, Roseanne from The Economist is here. Did, did, did you have a question or want to weigh in on something? Um, I'll let her come to us when, when, when she wants to. Um, give me a second here. So pipe in whenever you want, Roseanne. Um, in, in the meantime, uh, I thought it would be also important to note that, look, as Ricardo can, can, can explain, like the Trump administration basically shut down four, more than 400 brick and, not directly, but it, it forced the closure of more than 400 brick and mortar Western Union locations inside Cuba. Uh, I mean, what's crazy is that even if those locations come back online, they'll have to use the official exchange rate, meaning that like the money you send is going to be, you know, converted to pesos at the end at the 24 to one rate, right, Ricardo, instead of the actual rate. I mean, think about how much money you lose that way. I mean, that's almost like just a tax that the government takes. It's crazy. So, I mean, when the Biden administration is thinking about how do we get money to Cubans without the government taking a cut? Well, it's obviously not going to be through Western Union, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, you open it up and the market will decide. Um, but yeah, Western Union, if 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 those if that exchange rate is enforced on the ground in Cuba, and I think the Cuban government has argued that that's not necessarily the case, that you could that you could deliver the cash in uh, foreign currency. However, the problem is that there is an extreme shortage of foreign currency on the ground. So you even if that were or be allowed, it would in practical terms not be feasible. So then you're left with the official exchange rate. Um, but if that's the case and you have the official exchange rate, uh, uh, you know, be so widely divergent from the street rate, which is, you know, again, one to 24 pesos as opposed to one dollar to 70 pesos. People are not going to want to use the Western Union, even if you open it up. But Bitcoin uh, does, you know, it, that is something that you send it over. And if, so, and if the recipient in Cuba wants to exchange it, to hard currency, to hard pesos, they can go on one of these P2P uh, uh, informal exchanges on WhatsApp, on WhatsApp or on Telegram, where you have brokers who are trying to establish a name for themselves, a business for themselves, offering to buy that Bitcoin in exchange for hard currency, and they're resorting to that. But it's a solution. It is a solution. Thank you. Um, so... Uh, Go ahead. Go for it. No, 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 no. I was just going to say, um, you might want to jump in here, CK or, or Aaron. Yeah, for sure. And just a quick announcement to everyone listening. Uh, we are going to transition this room into an El Salvador update. So um, Aaron is uh, from Bitcoin Magazine, our technical editor, and has been in El Salvador for quite some time now. And 
getting really uh, acquainted with the Bitcoin community and effort down there and really kind of covering the story. Uh, so, you know, want to open this up maybe to just kind of questions for, uh, you know, for uh, the different folks that are up here, Enrique, uh, Ricardo and Boaz. Uh, I'm not sure when you all need to leave, but um, can definitely, you know, open up the conversation a little bit for the next 10, 15 minutes uh, until we uh, transition over to uh, talking about El Salvador. Um, Alex, let me know when uh, when you need to jump as well. Um, so I guess, uh, Ricardo, you want to jump in here or? Let's just, well, let's just, no, I, can, I can stick around. I can stick yeah, let's around. Just get it, let's just get concluding thoughts from. From Eric and, and Boas and Ricardo, and then and then we can yeah we can cruise on over to El Salvador. <laughs> that's that's great. Amazing. So yeah, I guess uh, in that case, uh, why don't we uh, why don't we move to kind of like final thoughts or or again we could open it up to potentially uh, to some questions. But uh, Eric, do you want to start uh, with a, a final word about Bitcoin in Cuba in this conversation? No, thanks. Thanks, and uh, once again for the invitation. Um, here I am. Uh, when you want to 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 make another meeting with Cuba, uh, let me know, and here I am. So I'm I'm very involved in the El Salvador movement because uh, that's a dream come true. Uh, maybe I I travel to El Salvador to see that with my own eyes. <laughs> let's let's wait to to that. Awesome. Well, I encourage you to stick around and uh, stay on stage for uh, for the follow up conversation as long as your phone, uh, you know, has has power. Um, but uh, I guess uh, should we jump over to you uh, to you, Ricardo? Um, what are your kind of closing words? Sure. I think the the monetary situation in Cuba is going to be volatile for a long time to come. Uh, so. Uh, it is, you know, in, in that in that environment, Bitcoin very much provides a lifeline. And I think it behooves the United States government uh, that has stated time and time and again that part of their policy focus is to help the empower, empower the Cuban people uh, to revise OFAC sanctions that allow or at least help incentivize U.S. tech and financial services firms to provide secure digital peer to peer payment solutions to Cubans on the ground, whether they be entrepreneurs, democracy advocates, independent journalists, other civil society actors, families, et cetera, allow them access to these peer-to-peer -peer payment solutions so that they can use more secure U.S. software in, in, in working with, with cryptocurrency. Uh, and I think the rest of us, it really falls on us to help educate Cubans on the value and potential of using uh, cryptocurrency, it's liberal, it's liberalizing potential within Cuba. And so with that, I just want to thank uh, you, Adam, Bitcoin Magazine, Boaz, Eric, uh, and uh, Antonio for taking the time to do this today. I hope, uh, I hope a lot of good people uh, and decision makers were listening. Fantastic. Boaz, you want to jump in? Yeah. Um... It's, it's, it's hard to summarize things um, more eloquently than the previous two speakers. But yeah, I too would like to thank um, Bitcoin Magazine for this talk. Um, and I just want to emphasize the fact that, you know, we, we sometimes it's easy to, to speak about countries that are, you know, far away, either geographically or in, in some way politically, you know, like Afghanistan recently or Cuba right now. 
And to think of them in the abstract and in in the sort of, you know, way of, of oh, people that live under a communist, you know, government, et cetera, et cetera, and to distance yourself from the other human being that's on the other side. But really, I want you guys to, to visualize and to think of the person that had tears of joy at being able to purchase her own Netflix subscription. You know, I want you to keep in mind that it's, you know, real people that are trying to get ahead in their day-to-day lives in the same way that all of us here are trying to get ahead in our day-to-day lives. I just want to be able to, you know, buy stuff online and get paid for their work and do very, very simple things that we take for granted. And it's, you know, it's not so much about the governments in the U.S. or the governments in Cuba, etc. It's about the people. And it's about the people that want to be able to, you know, you know, be happy and, you know, prosper and get ahead in life. And these are the people for whom we are all building um, and working towards um, this technology. Uh, yeah, those are, those are my final thoughts. Thank Amen you. to that. Super. Um, Amen. Amen to that. So maybe we can just, again, and that's the conclusion of the, the article in my investigation was that the Cuban government is probably not going to reform. They're going to continue to try to exploit the people monetarily through the MLC scheme. The American government, you know, does not look like it's going to reform. I mean, Biden has had eight months. So he hasn't done anything to rescind or, or reduce the, the 400, whatever it was, 200 plus new restrictions uh, that Trump put on Cuba. Um, so in the meantime, Cubans are turning to Bitcoin. I mean, now that's really the big, uh, big, big takeaway I had. Um, and it's, it's unstoppable. And, you know, middle middle class Cubans, lower class Cubans, Cubans of all kinds across the country are stacking sats it's, it's incredible and they're they're they're, they're going to do very well for themselves relatively speaking i mean one of the people i interviewed was even sending money to her family in the united states now because she she had done you know relatively so well with bitcoin over the last three years um which which is obviously hard to even imagine um so what we'll, we'll take some um you know we'll take some requests here so we'll, we'll bring some people up on stage soledad digital Welcome up. Do you uh, do you have any kind of like thoughts or questions for any of these speakers? Uh, yes. You know, I, I have relative in Cuba and in El Salvador, and I was born in El Salvador. I live in Texas, though, but I, I've been using, uh, you know, Bitcoin to uh, send, uh, you know, uh, uh, Bitcoin or sats to people that I don't even know in Cuba just to help them out. And so they can uh, see how, you know, Bitcoin is being used. And as Eric mentioned, I mean, like. He's living off of Bitcoin, and uh, it's interesting to hear that this topic is going on right now. And I, now that you're gonna be talking about El Salvador, and that's something you know that you know uh, amazing. I would say that it's gonna be happening in September 9th. But I just I just wanted to give out that opinion, and I mean I'm just excited as many people in this group are. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I did have a question. So I guess, uh, you know, uh, Eric, uh, you you are, uh, you know, ordering things online. Are you do you have the ability to like receive packages uh, with the kind of the infrastructure in Cuba? Or, you know, are you kind of constrained to just digital goods um, in terms of uh, what Bitcoin gives you access to? Well, that's another interesting situation with the, 
with the, with the Cuban crypto community. So far, there is no um, delivery to Cuba from any store in the U.S., uh, neither Walmart, neither Amazon, neither anything. So, but in Florida, in Miami, there is a uh, companies who send those packages to Cuba through cheap, through airplane, whatever. They are private companies. And, and that's a key factor in this crypto movement because myself and other Cuban, of course, talk to those companies and convince them to accept um, Bitcoin or USDT or any other cryptocurrency as payment for that logistic, logistic operation. And, and, and that's the, the, the whole circle of the buying process. You, you buy a product in Walmart or Amazon and then deliver that product to the warehouse in that private company in Miami. And that private company sends to you um, to Cuba and, and get paid in crypto because you previously make an agreement with that company to pay them in crypto. And I, I assume then that company trans, uh, convert that crypto into fi fiat currency via com Coinbase, Binance, anyway. Uh, and that's my current movement right now. I am trying to com convince, com to, to make um, uh, that, that uh, solution to those private companies in Miami to become accepting crypto as payment solution because that's the way the Cuban have. Um, I hope his phone didn't finally die. Yeah, well, <laughs> Antonio's phone died, so we're dropping like flies here. I, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be going myself, uh, but again, Aaron's going to carry the load here into the El Salvador theme. But I, I wanted to thank you all for coming. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, I look forward to continuing to gather folks and talk about these issues uh, every couple weeks with, uh, with the Bitcoin mag team. So Bitcoin mag team, thanks so much for hosting. Um, and we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll see you guys soon. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Alex, for, for writing and doing the amazing research and, uh, um, you know, making this possible. Um, we have freedom for Cuba on stage. Um, freedom for Cuba. Do you have any questions for, uh, the panel or any statements? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks guys. Thanks for hosting this. Um, as a Cuban, I actually have a couple of concerns, right? So one of the issues that we have is that, um, the government, right. Um, you know, socialist economic systems don't allow for systems to thrive, right? So the issue that we have is that these private companies, a lot of them, um, I don't want to just paint with a broad brush, but they become a lifeline for the government. And so they're affiliated with the government. And so the, the issue that we're having is what we call in Cuba, so the common Cuban, how is this going to impact them? And how can we have them think in these terms when they're thinking of their day to day? Right. And so it becomes very challenging um, as a Bitcoiner, right? Um, outside of the island, when I personally have um, friends and family in Cuba, and even if I were to talk to them about it, it's not something in their realm. And it's something hard to grasp at because um, the system, the way that it's created, you gain access to certain uh, luxuries. Um, which aren't really luxuries, but 
um, if you are affiliated with the government. Um, and if not, um, they, they put the clamps down, right? So they'll, I have family, for instance, that have never gone to uh, Vagalego, right? It's a, it's a common beach. Um, you can't have access as a Cuban. And so to me, it's, it's interesting when we talk about it because I'm like, yeah, these are great ideas, but how are we going to implement it with the reality on the islands? And maybe a Zabalud is a better um, is a better um, environment for Bitcoin in Latin America or in the Caribbean, uh, just because of the government they have established. Whereas in Cuba, as a as a common Cubaner, you can't even go into the hotel. So if you were a Cuban, like if you're a Cuban citizen, you can't even gain access to the lobby of a hotel in your own country. Let alone if they find out that you're dealing in Bitcoin, which they will probably say that it's a black market uh, thing if you're not affiliated with the government. And then they'll just ha they'll do uh, the disappearing act, right? They'll take you away. They'll say that you're going against the system. So I think that's something that we have to uh, be cognizant of. And we also have to be cognizant of these private uh, companies where they, ha they are affiliated with the government and they do have access because they have that friendly, warm relationship. And if you think about Bitcoin and decentralization, I'm thinking of more like open dimes and those types of, of businesses that need to flourish in Cuba, where it's something outside of the state control and it doesn't matter if they get goods or not. It's a way where we could uh, control um, the narrative versus relying on a private company where you're not really uh, like my internal um i guess argument is is it decentralized if we're now relying on these private well, entities can you can you can you clarify what private entity you're referring to so like, like let's say entities yeah or? so any any type of company so like if you're shipping into cuba you have to typically send things through a boat right and so they're not going to allow that boat um, to gain access to Cuba unless they're affiliated with the government. And they tell you right away, like, once you bring in anything to Cuba, they have the right to take away um, anything. And just just like the corruption itself is 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 something that unless you've experienced it, especially if you're Cuban. So I can tell you, I've gone to the island um, and I've left. I, I leave everything there because my family has nothing. Right. But. I mean, they've even like they've taken away things as simple as a razor blade because they don't even have um, razor blades to shave themselves. And we're talking about the people in the airport, uh, let alone on the dock where they could decide that they're going to decommission something because they can't they don't know how you came about it or they just decide that you're an anti-revolutionist and that you can't have certain things because they just decide that you're not going to have it. And so that's the issue that I have, and I know many other Cubans have, where it's like, it's a great idea to bring Bitcoin or anything into the island to try to help, but we can't ignore the elephant in the room, which is the government and how um, certain people may have access to it. And the people that you may even talk to may be affiliated with it. And this is not a shot at you, Eric, or anything like that. I'm just saying that um, the common Cubaner Right, the the Guanalapie um, is not necessarily worried about Bitcoin. Um, they're, they they don't see the incentive, and if, in my opinion, and if they don't see the incentive, it would be hard to, um, you know, 
really uh, see Bitcoin flourish in an environment like Cuba. And it's it's just um, the reality of things. As a Bitcoiner, I would love to see it, but I just don't see it under the certain circumstances that we have now in the island, especially with um, what we've seen with COVID and all the different uh, issues that we have. But I won't take up all your time just giving me giving you guys my two cents and just trying to give you guys a feel for the, the reality uh, and the challenges that we may have uh, trying to bring Bitcoin to Cuba. If I may respond to that. Um, uh, oh, I'm sorry. The gentleman who spoke, El Caballero de Paris. Um, I, I, I hear a lot of what you're saying. Um, I, I will say if we, if, if we don't act out of concern that no matter what we do, the government is going to get their paws on whatever we do, we'll just be paralyzed and nothing will ever get done. Right. You have to, you have to basically go in and assess a, a very, take a very, make a very simple assessment. Is this activity from our vantage point based on our judgment and all the information we have, is it going to have, is it going to have a greater impact on the people or is it going to uh, have a greater benefit to the government? If you can discern that the activity, the impact will be greater on the people. And even if there's a collateral benefit to the government, there's, that is an, a compelling enough reason to move forward. Now, that doesn't mean that you look for ways to reduce the government's take on anything. I think a clear example of this right now is with remittances. Trump, uh, President Trump, completely shut down remittances after seeing that the government was becoming increasingly reliant on the on remittances to shore up the economy and particularly the military that was taking a cut on of uh, every remittance that was coming in, even though some of those estimates of what the cut was were inflated. Nonetheless, the, the point was they wanted to cut off the flow of, of currency to the military. So they cut off remittances. I think what was a mistake there is basically allowing the people to be collateral damage in your policy attempt to try to cut off inflows of currency to the military. The Biden administration right now, understanding all that, is has started has this remittance working group that is actively trying to see how they can structure formal remittance flows that either minimize whatever cut the military gets or eliminates it altogether. And if we see remittances go online uh, next month or whenever it is that the, that the remittance working group uh, 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 shares its findings, it'll be because we found a new way to reduce the cut that the military takes. So it's an iterative, iterative process. It's never going, there is no silver bullet. There is no magic wand. There is no, nothing you can do in Cuba that will say, ah, this will only benefit people and this will in no way, shape or form benefit the government. The government adapts, people adapt, and we have to adapt too. But if, if we go into it always fearing that, oh, if we do this, it's just going to help the regime or they're going to find a way to figure out how to get their cut and therefore we can't do it. All that does is perpetuate the status quo. All that does is keep Cuba exactly where it is and where it has been for the last 60 years. Uh, thank you for that response, uh, Ricardo. Um, 
we I think we're going to do one last comment on uh, Cuba and then jump into uh, into the programming on El Salvador. Uh, apologize if I pronounce your wrong, uh, name wrong, but uh, Josu Lopez, um, welcome onto the stage. Um, how, what, how do you want to uh, add to this conversation? Hey guys, thank you for having me, and I really appreciate uh, even deviating from your main uh, subject as El Salvador. I just want to second what Ricardo had to say. There's always going to be a way the government uh, gets a grab of things. I speak from experience. I work in production, and I've been moving money around uh, with or without remittance uh, being uh, in, in proper functioning because it was it was always taking a chunk. So I've, I've done it always, and uh, it's it still happens. So the, the time when, when, it, when you have to buy food, you, you end up in the government stores. So there you go. There's some money that goes to, to the government. So like Rick said, there's, there's no way to help the people without the government taking a little bit. And, and, and I think it's a fair price to pay in order to help the Cuban people. Uh, I wanted to ask what platforms you recommend here. I'm, I'm in Havana. I'm a U.S. citizen as well, but I'm, I'm mostly based in Havana for, for my work. And uh, I would love to hear a recommendation of what a platform I can use to, to get Bitcoin. And again, uh, encourage everyone to, to promote any private business in Cuba that runs on the sidelines of, uh, of the government and don't need to use uh, uh, the official channels for, for any transaction. And again, I think only 10% maybe gets in the hands of the government if we use something decentralized as Bitcoin or any other, any other crypto. So thank you for doing this, guys. Uh, I mean, Ricardo, do you have, do you have a response? Or Eric, uh, I mean, you, you're on the ground in Cuba as well. Maybe you, you have some thoughts there on preferred platforms. Yeah, if Eric can connect, I think I'd like to leave this one to him. He probably knows best. Yeah, go for it, Eric. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Uh, look, um, Jose Lopez, no? Well, you can you can buy Bitcoin in 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 any exchange worldwide. There is Binance. There is uh, local Bitcoins. If you have no uh, experience with purchasing purchasing Bitcoin with those uh, exchanges, but in Cuba right now there is a increasing number of those platforms who get your bitcoin and pay to the to the to the cuban people as a remittance model i can i can tell you there is bit remesas there is dombix there is um crypto payments crypto cuba there is um telegram groups whatsapp groups uh, and of course, you are exposed to the scam and exposed to the to, to the to the people who are mean and just stole your money. So be careful with that. Um, of course, I will recommend you to use bitremesas.com because it's uh, funded by the community who is uh, serious uh, with with that business model, but you can use a lot of um, startups over there. Uh, and, the, and of course, the, the business model is the next. You send Bitcoin, you will get uh, um, a, a bank account transfer, a, a bank transfer in the destination you choose. 
in the page um, in less than eight hours or six hours that familiar or that Cuban will have that amount of COP in their account. It's the same business model as Remitly. Um, you pay with Bitcoin and the people get a payment with <clears throat> fiat money. Also, you can send the, the Bitcoin directly to the, to the Cuban person. And, and, that, and that, that's it. But then that Cuban people must sell that Bitcoin. Um, that's a risky, a risky process. My intention with the channel, with the YouTube channel, is teach to the people uh, the ways they can use that Bitcoin to buy stuff in Cuba or, or outside. So that the, 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 the approach is tell to the people to do not sell that Bitcoin, but use it in the in the Cuban market or the global market anyway awesome awesome uh, just to kind of add since you said you're American you know if you're just looking to purchase Bitcoin using an American bank account there's a lot of exchanges uh, cash app river.com swan Bitcoin coinbase these are always you can use an American bank account to acquire Bitcoin and then there's a lot of non-custodial wallets that you can uh, download I really like moon wallet m-u-u-m or sorry, M-U-U-N wallet. Uh, that's a really simple way to uh, take the Bitcoin from an exchange, put it on your wallet, and then like um, Arik said, you know, use it uh, in, in the ecosystem. Um, I would like to encourage everyone who's still listening to go and read Alex Gladstein's amazing article inside Cuba's Bitcoin revolution. It's on Bitcoin Magazine. Um, Arik and Ricardo were both interviewed in that. Thank you.